0: Okay, gathering up all that we have looked at together today, I want to uh, look together at what a church or a Christian institution looks like when she understands some of these things and follows her Lord. So I wanna give you some governing principles for how leaders, pastors, and church systems, in other words, people with power, can think about and respond To the life crippling problem of abuse of any kind and given the stories that sit in our pews many unknown to us what does it mean for god's people to be a healing community so number one we need to acknowledge to ourselves and publicly the problem of abuse Child sexual abuse, rape, verbal and physical abuse is not just out there, it is also in here, and it is a very real thing that does damage to humans. It is not a Catholic problem. It is not a poverty problem. It is not something that only happens to people with bad behavior. We need to acknowledge the reality of abuse out loud, from the pulpit, and in many other arenas of the church. Number two, we need to approach this work very carefully. Churches have little to no education on these matters. Most seminaries never speak of abuse. We need to be honest about that. We have not invited victims to tell us their stories. We haven't learned from them. We have, as churches, not been taught about offenders and how they work. We have often not developed policies and safeguards for the children and vulnerable people in our midst. We teach about God, marriage, sex, parenting, but it does not usually include the topics of sexual abuse, rape, and domestic abuse. Three, we need to grasp what abuse is. So what is physical abuse? Hitting, burning, pushing, biting, restraining, scratching, blocking, beating with an object, using the body to threaten, such as slamming a fist into a wall, or breaking something. It means using physical power to control, manipulate, or intimidate another person. What is verbal abuse? Name calling. Humiliating and sneering are all abusive. It means using words, using our verbal power to control, manipulate, or intimidate. What is emotional abuse? It is the systematic tearing down of another human being by rejecting, ignoring, making fun of, terrorizing, labeling, isolating, or corrupting. It is the use of emotional power to control, manipulate, or intimidate. Domestic abuse is essentially a pattern of assaulting, coercing behavior, or sometimes it is a pattern of obsessional controlling behavior. It often builds up and over time becomes increasingly severe. So initially, perhaps words are used to frighten, to threaten, or to coerce. And then restricting, isolating, and withholding behaviors are added. And then physical acting out is the next level, which essentially means doing damage to things, such as punching a hole in the wall or breaking things. And then physical violence of a wife is the next level, and finally, weapons of some kind are added to the abuse. So if you think about that increment thing, you get some feeling for how fear builds up in a home or in the person who's being abused. You can wound or kill a soul by any of these means. The lack of physical scars does not mean abuse is not occurring. Number four, any kind of abuse is an abuse of the vulnerable by someone with power. They could, again, be powerful in position, size, age, verbal capacity, knowledge. It is not a 50-50 proposition. It is never caused by the victim. A child is never, ever, responsible for sexual abuse. A grown man or woman can be terrified and abused by someone in power. There are countless ways other than physical force to coerce another human being into something they do not want. There are countless reasons for a grown person to be very vulnerable to being abused. Age, size, education, profession do not protect human beings from at points in their lives being extremely vulnerable. Vulnerability at any time in any person demands protection. And again, as we said at the beginning, our response to vulnerability exposes who we are. Five, anyone who abuses another human being whether it is the sexual abuse of a minor or the sexual, physical, verbal assault or harassment of an adult, that person is exposing the contents of his or her own heart and mind. Scripture is very clear that you and I are defiled by what comes out of us. We don't like to think that way. But abuse of any kind comes from the heart of the person who is doing the abusing. It is not due to the victim's behavior, clothing, wrongdoing, or anything else. The victim's behavior tells us about the victim. It does not tell us about the perpetrator. His or her actions speak about them and them alone. So how many of us, for example, have been around very troubled, confused, and sometimes even seductive adolescents, but we've never molested them? Why? Because it is not in our hearts to do so. Such an adolescent actually needs more protection, not less. That is also true of seductive, annoying, needy, and frail adults. To prey on vulnerable people is wolf-like, Seeking out the weaker for food is what a predator does. I have been to the savannas of South Africa and I have watched the gazelles run. And I've watched them run when a pride of lions is after them. And in the grass, the lions wait and watch and they see the gazelles who are weaker and more frail and who start to fall behind from the rest of the herd. And then the lions move in slowly and stealthily to kill. And the herd, the herd just keeps on running. How can such an image be relevant to the church of Jesus Christ? Number six, I hate to break it to you, But research demonstrates that you and I can't really tell who's lying. (laughs) Now, if you really let that get in, it's a little scary. Somebody comes and tells us someone we know has sexually abused them, and we think, I know that person, it can't be true. Scripture says our hearts are so deceitful we don't even know our own. The scripture says, Jesus trusted no man because he knew what was in man. We say, I know that person. I trust him. Jesus says, I know that person. I don't trust him. (laughs) Scripture says that God does not judge by what his eyes see or his ears hear, which is what we do, right? He judges according to to righteousness we judge by what we see in here and what we see in here tells us we think what is in the heart scripture says anything that it is not like God is off plum what we call sin scripture says the tares the darnel grow right beside the wheat we talked about this earlier and they look exactly alike until the fruit is born we tend to trust the likeness and say the fruit cannot be real research consistently shows that it is very rare for an alleged victim child or adult male or female to lie about abuse and when they do it is almost for the purpose almost always for the purpose of protecting the perpetrator number 7 One of the things both research and experience make very clear about those who offend is that they deceive themselves, and we talked about this, about the nature of what they are doing, about the victim, about the impact of their behavior, and why they did what they did. In essence, they have habituated deceit. That means that the words and tears of an offender are never underlined three times, sufficient indicators of the reality of what is going on inside him or her. Such deception is very entrenched and slow to change. And a sex offender can eventually lose the capacity to tell truth from lies. And because of that, we must not just be concerned with protecting the vulnerable from the offender, but we must also protect the offender from him or herself. Proverbs 1, 18 and 19 says this. They ambush their own lives. Violence takes away the life of its possessor. When we do not understand the level of deceit, we make it easy for the offender to sin and to continue in deception. If we love the abuser, we will know that true repentance is slow and hard for any of us and that their words and promises cannot be trusted. Keep in mind that one of the most powerful weapons of deception is spiritual language. Number eight, well, but what about God's grace, Diane? What about his mercy? Well, it is indeed vast, and I am very grateful for that. However, grace and mercy under any circumstances never for a millisecond tolerate sin. It is the terminal illness that is slaughtering humanity. People that God knit together, people that he loves and died for, and he will not budge an inch while it has a toehold in the life of a human being. Cancer multiplies and spreads and therefore kills. One cell of cancer in the body is one cell too many. Tearful apologies are not sufficient. Only radical surgery. We fail to love those who abuse when we do not grasp this truth. Because sin like cancer starts small and spreads. And treatment? Repentance? Knocks the life out of the person. If any of you have been through chemotherapy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. God's love and mercy like that treatment will do the same. As Bonhoeffer has said, nothing can be crueler than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian from the path of sin. Number nine, church leaders are not trained to investigate sexual abuse, do child forensic interviews or investigate felonies such as domestic violence or rape. In fact, church leaders are not only untrained about abuse, they are not trained to investigate crimes of any kind. And so we need to have the honesty and humility to acknowledge that so when somebody alleges abuse, which can be a very serious crime, we need to immediately call the civil authorities. There is no exception to that response if the alleged victim is a minor. They tell, you call. To fail to do so is arrogant and inevitably damages the victim and endangers others and frankly, the institution you think you're protecting. Reporting crimes of any kind does not prevent us from being the church. Hiding a crime is in fact against the law. It's wise to get assistance from an independent organization that has both the knowledge and experience in this area. Transparency then protects both the alleged victims, the alleged perpetrator from the horrific burden of lies, and the institution. A transparent process protects truth for all when those in power attempt to dissemble in order to protect an institution, they are no longer accomplishing damage control. They are causing damage. Damage to God's sheep, damage to the name of our God, in the name of protecting his house. That's what the Israelites said, again, remember, in the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, all the while, you know what they were doing? they were throwing their children into the fire of Moloch. He was this big idol. And there was a thing that rolled down into his gut where there was a fire. And they were rolling their children down that thing into the fire. You know why they did that? For the sake of purity so God would be pleased with them. God's response was to destroy the temple, the entire system that he designed and ordained. Number 10, insurance companies often require, or probably most of the time now, <clears throat> background checks for church staff. That's a good thing. But keep in mind, it only reveals who's been caught, which is frankly a very small minority of abusers. Most abusers have abused, particularly child abusers, many, many times before they get caught. So we need carefully researched procedures and policies to protect the vulnerable in our midst. And it is, again, a wise to get assistance from an organization with knowledge and experience in this area. We need policies for victims, we need policies for the congregation, we need policies for the offenders. Many things are needed so the sheep are not just fed but also enfolded and protected. I have been on the board of Grace. I suspect some of you have heard of that organization. Their website is netgrace.org. <clears throat> I've been on the board since its inception, but it has many uh, things on the website that are helpful to churches, and they also can do consultations, and they do trainings and all kinds of things. Number Number 11 sexual abuse in Christian organizations. You think about that phrase for a minute. That should be the king of oxymorons. When a shepherd feeds off one of the sheep, God is honored when the unfit shepherd is removed. He has demonstrated that he is unfit. Vulnerable, sick, or broken sheep should always find safety in the house of our God. As Christians, we often fail to report the crime of abuse because we think we are protecting a family or we are protecting the church. And the family and the church are both God-ordained institutions and worthy of our protection. However, there is nothing sacred or protective about a family or church full of sin. Our God does not protect institutions he has designed and created when they are enterprises that cover up evil. God thinks that sin is the worst thing in the world, not the loss of reputation and not the loss of a human institution. It's an old Scottish theologian, G. Campbell Morgan, whom I have learned many things from, and he said this, sanctuary is a place having no complicity with the things that make sanctuary a necessity. Number 12, your churches have gifted caregivers in them, lay caregivers. Some churches develop um, a core of godly men and godly women who have shown themselves to be good caregivers and have them study these topics, read about sexual abuse, read about rape, read about domestic violence. So then when somebody comes forward to a pastor or Sunday school teacher or whatever, there are people already well read and understanding those issues that can walk alongside the individual, the family, or whatever is needed as they deal with the abuse. I have throughout the years often met with small groups of men and women who want to study topics like this, and it can be a wonderful, wonderful ministry and bring hope to those in the dungeon of abuse. 13, many victims turn, as we talked about this earlier, turn to alcohol, drugs, get depressed, suffer PTSD. So when you meet a troubled church member ask and are asking about their history, and you find out they're struggling with some of these things, you also want to ask if there's a history of abuse in their life. It should always be a question in premarital counseling, whether one or the other, and you know, I end up with people in the office who years ago had premarital counseling and nobody asked. You know, have either of you ever been abused? Can we talk about that? Teaching about relationships in the church, which we do frequently, should also include naming abuse and the different kinds and what they look like, verbal, emotional, physical, sexual, and teaching our churches that these things are never acceptable to God, no matter who does them or how important they are. Call the people that you serve or the people around you to holiness in all the corners of their lives. We are to be a shining light in these dark places, giving hope to wounded people. Many years ago, I was—I um, I wrote a book on um, sexual, two books on sexual abuse, one for counselors and one for lay people, I mean for victims. And a woman who was the head of, national head of a, a women's ministry was reading the one for counselors and she read it while she was flying back and forth across the country and she, she um, told me, uh, she was so glad she called me and she said, I'm so glad you wrote this book. It's really helpful. Thank you for this. I'm so glad this doesn't happen in my denomination. (laughs) So I said, hmm. (laughs) Can I make a suggestion? Sure. You go all over the country and you speak to women's ministries, right? Yes. You talk to them about their struggles with marriage, with parenting, you know, whatever, depression, anxiety. Would you just throw sexual abuse into the list? Sure, she said. About three months later she called me and she said, I don't know what to do. I said, what do you mean? She said, they're coming out of the woodwork. Just because she named it, it made it okay to say that they were victims. Number 14, understand that change, transformation of any human being with any history is hard and slow and repetitious and it takes courage. All of us know this. All of us work with things in ourselves again and again and yet again, right? Victims are struggling with the things that they most want to forget, trying to avoid the pain, not wanting to face the lies. These are difficult things. This is why our God is the God of the millstone he understands the deep damage of abuse to a person and to soul victims need encouragement and affirmation not judgment we tend to want people to hurry along and just believe the right things and they'll feel better in the morning and just forget about that it's bad you don't need that in your head and then they can stop disrupting us please do know that abuse is never forgotten It's always in the brain. The brain doesn't forget anything. We can't find it sometimes, but it's in there. So when you tell people they need to just move on and not think about it, they can't. It's part of who they are and it will be until they die. What you want is for them to look at it and deal with it and grow so that it can actually be transformed to some degree into a redemptive force in their lives instead of a destructive one. (laughs) Hmm. if we're honest we will admit that none of us is easily transformed yes no matter our history it takes an almighty God working patiently over a long time to bring the healing of Christ into our lives so when we walk with those who are suffering you can I promise you be assured that God is working both sides You think you're there to help them, you are. God sent them to you to help you. He uses the process and its slowness and bumps and repetitions to transform you and me as much as the one we're helping. I know, because he's done it with me. 15, God's people are called to humility. That means church leaders must recognize the potential for bias that is inherent in their positions. A fundamental understanding of our own capacity for self-deception requires that we avail ourselves of independent scrutiny from those who are not part of the institution. That also means that we see that all power has been given to Christ. Remember, he said so. Therefore, all of our power is derivative. And if we use our power to hide wrongdoing or to feed ourselves in some fashion, it is not a godly use of power, no matter how much the attendance numbers are growing or the money is coming in or the books we've published or the gifting or brilliance or any other thing of a leader. Humility bends down humility becomes like leaves glory washes feet and ever and only listens to the voice of the father no matter the cost and there will be a cost 16. finally dear beloved vulnerable ones in this room those of you who have been used and silenced abused tossed aside, know that Jesus is very sadly often nothing like his church. He loves and calls us to truth and light, to transparency and right naming, and he is the one who bends to tend and care for you when his church does not. He weeps, not only over you and your suffering at the hands of those who perhaps named his name, but also over his church, as he did with Jerusalem, saying, if you had known the things that make for your peace, my house, he said, has become a refuge for predators. It is a safe place for those who steal. So in your struggles with your abuse, (laughs) fight to remember that God's people sometimes act in ways that tell you lies about who God is. He is and always will be the God of the millstone and a tender shepherd who cares for his lambs. So in closing today, I'm gonna take you to a couple of places that I have been because I think they teach clear and godly truths. A couple years ago, I was invited to go to Phnom Penh, Cambodia to teach people from 10 different countries about trauma and abuse. And while there, I was taken to see some of the genocide memorials. And as I'm sure as many of you recall, the Cambodian genocide was carried out by the Khmer Rouge under the leadership of Pol Pot and resulted in approximately three million deaths. It was in the late 70s. The Khmer Rouge first forced people out of their homes, then their jobs and their cities. The next thing they did was remove all the fathers and execute them. Then they separated mothers and children. Then they separated siblings. People were put in labor camps and torture prisons. So do you hear the levels of purposeful, devastating loss upon loss upon loss? I was taking to the killing fields, which in spite of their name is actually a very beautiful place, of water and beautiful trees and mass graves. Some of them not yet excavated decades later. So we were walking on this boardwalk that goes in and out of the waters and the trees and the mass graves. And the dirt settles, of course, when it rains. And at one point I called to the woman who was taking me there, and I called her back over, and I pointed in one of those places, and I said, that doesn't look like a stick. She said, it's not a stick. It's a bone. And when it rains, they rise to the surface. So do pieces of tattered cloth. The Killing Fields was a place of great beauty and unspeakable horror. And I sat down on a bench, again, stunned, unable to think. And as in my time in Rwanda or my time in Auschwitz, I had no words. I recalled the words of Elie Wiesel, who was a survivor of Auschwitz, and he said this, I pinched myself. Was I still alive? Was I awake? How is it possible that men, women, and children were being burned and that the world kept silent? All this could not be real. It's a nightmare. Soon I would wake up with a start and I told my father, I could not believe that human beings were being burned in our times. The world would never tolerate such crimes. My father said, The world? The world is not interested in us. Today everything is possible, even the crematoria. Every abused misused, oppressed human being down through the centuries that the Church of Jesus Christ has ignored or thrown out. Make up the killing fields of the Church of Jesus. Child sexual abuse, rape, clergy sexual abuse, domestic violence, verbal and emotional abuse, the twisting and crushing use of power said to be derived from Christ but used to feed the self, You can kill a soul by any of these means. It seems clear that God is calling us, as he did the Israelites, to see and to listen and to stop believing deceptive words that somehow lead us to hide and silence these atrocities and call that protection of the church. I went back in my mind to Elie Wiesel's father. Everything is possible, he said to his 14-year-old son as they sat in a concentration camp together. It was indeed possible that human beings burn children and vulnerable adults and no one helps. But you see, if we look back further, we find in Jeremiah and other places that the Israelites, the people of our God, also sacrificed children to the fire. And why did they do that? To appease God, to stay in his good graces. They sacrificed their children to the Canaanite God, Molech. So they did what the God of Israel forbade them to do in order to earn his favor and please him. It hurts the brain. The Nazis were not the first to burn children. God's people did it long before the Nazis. And God's people thought they were doing a good thing, that they were protecting their tribe and their nation and their faith. I have stood in Auschwitz and Buchenwald beside those ovens where children and vulnerable people were thrown. And why were they thrown in those places? For the sake of purity. For us to be pure, we must get rid of certain kinds of humans, silence them, eliminate them, because they're a threat to our purity and our prosperity. I've been to the killing fields of Rwanda where those who were called cockroaches needed to be destroyed so the people could be purified. And as a result, close to a million people were slaughtered in 100 days, mostly by machete. Many of them ran into churches for refuge and were killed there. Churches where you walk in, like coming in here, and the floor is covered with bones that have never been taken out. As one Rwandan said to me, I used to think of the church as a sanctuary. Now I think of it as a cemetery. Now I think of it as the killing fields wearing God's name basically. So I've been to the killing fields of Cambodia and in the midst of that field, there is a massive tree. It's gorgeous. And that tree is a creation of our God But that creation, which was meant to provide people with shelter and shade, is called the killing tree. Why? Because that is where babies were killed by slamming them into the tree. And the tree is covered, as people are wont to do, with memorial items like bracelets and rings and notes. And why were the little ones killed on that tree? For the sake of equality and cleansing. Paul Potts said what is rotten must be removed. The parents of children sacrificed to Moloch did not kill their children. Hitler did not kill the children. The leaders in Rwanda did not kill. And Pol Pot said in his international trial thing, I didn't kill anybody. The priests threw the children into the fire. The soldiers put them in the ovens in the concentration camps and the Rwandan people slaughtered their own neighbors. The soldiers shot or beat others to death in the killing fields. These four situations existed for the purpose of cleansing, making whole, purifying and protecting human beings. Those are good goals. We would even say they're godly. Do we not all need cleansing and purifying? Indeed we do. These were godly words hiding ghastly ungodly deeds. And please understand that the damage done in those places was not just to victims. Horrific damage was done to the killers. Hideous damage was done to the doers, the parents and the priests and the soldiers and the neighbors, human beings rotting their own souls, trying to make things better, sometimes for God's sake and in his name. I know that killing tree, it's very old. And it's the kind of tree that when you see it, you say, I wonder what stories it could tell. Sort of like Treebeard in Lord of the Rings. Only that tree was no end. The sign says on it, killing tree against which executioners beat children. Why? So they would not grow up and revenge their parents' deaths. In other words, they were killed so they would never seek justice. They were permanently silenced, so they would never threaten the system Pol Pot was trying to establish. I must confess, in those places around the world, it often makes me ask God what he was thinking and feeling while he watched all those atrocities. And he's taught me something of his answer to those questions, questions that many stories of abuse and cover up have raised in me over the years. And you see, the answer comes by way of another killing tree. It's an odd one though. It's not a tree where the other is killed for the sake of cleansing and purity. It is a tree where the most pure, the most clean, is himself killed for the sake of the dirty, the filthy, and the evil ones. A place where those in power took innocence and holiness, and executed him. Our lives and our eternities are based on that killing tree, the one we call the cross. There too, it seemed, as if God has left, just like in all the other places. He was silent. Darkness covered everything. He was alone, rejected, despised, cast out. Sounds a bit like a victim, doesn't it? He who has all power blessed us and then bowed, allowing human power that was being used to protect place and position and institution and and tradition, that power rendered the temple yet again a safe place for predators who destroyed him. But they had it wrong, didn't they? The power of Rome in bed with religious leaders crushed and killed a lot of little people. The power of Rome and religious leaders continue to do that today, sometimes in our own circles. But the God-man on that killing tree bore Auschwitz and Rwanda and Cambodia that day. And he bore our arrogance and our self-protection and our deceptions. He bore our willingness to sacrifice victims, telling ourselves we're preserving his church for his name's sake. And he bore the great suffering of all who have been used and abused and silenced through the ages, it killed him. He went from the killing tree to the killing fields for us and he has called us to follow him there. In those places like Auschwitz and killing fields, I find myself overcome with grief and loss and stunned at at the magnitude and the level of cruelty. I pray I never get over it. They feel like places of utter despair. Grief often does, doesn't it? But as I sat and pondered in Cambodia, I saw the the parable, just like I did in Cape Coast Castle. We, you and I, you see, live in the killing fields. That's what this earth is. We live in a planet that's full of beauty and horror. It's incongruous. It strains the heart and the mind. But there is no one on this planet, no matter how brilliant or rich or strong or healthy or anything else who will not face grief and loss during their lifetime and eventually face their own death. Such things are woven into the fabric of this world. We do not want to face it. We feel little and afraid. Our own fears easily lead us to abuse our power. So we feel bigger and stronger and sure we're on the right side where is the hope and strength in such a place? Where is the strength to follow the one on the tree who openly condemned the things that we call the killing fields? A couple years ago, I also went to Bulgaria. I went there to teach people from different countries who were working with trafficked women about trauma and abuse. I seem to keep doing that. And while there, I went into the city, Sofia, to see it and hear its history. And here's what I heard. The guide told us that in World War I, Bulgaria aligned itself with Germany. And then World War II came and they didn't want to do that again, so they did nothing and tried to remain neutral. And eventually they had to choose a side and they again aligned themselves with Germany. And one day, having done that, orders came from Nazi Germany that Bulgaria was to uh, kill all the Jews that were working there, or put them on trains and send them to the concentration camps. Bulgaria refused. There were three or four men who were high up in the national government, and they said, no, we will not. And what they did was hide the Jews, many of them, they put on their farms out in the country, and just said, those are our slaves and protected them sometime down the road the order came again we want you to give us the jews we're going to put them on camps and, uh, on trains and take them to treblinka which was not a work camp it was a death camp they refused again the third time germany said we're bringing the trains in and you have to march all the jews down to the train this time they did it so they took all the Jews down from the capital in the country and walked all the way down, and they cut them on the train. And the train was ready to get take off, and go where they were going with all the Jews. And three men, leaders, one was a religious leader, and I think two, one was military and one was in government, stood on the tracks. And they said to the conductor of the train, you can take the Jews, but you have to kill us first they let the Jews go. Bulgaria celebrates every year what they call the Ceremony of the Ungiven, which is a beautiful name. I'm told it's much more beautiful in their language. Do you understand that that's who we are? Because the one who came to the killing fields we call Earth and was killed on the killing tree for our sakes has stood on the tracks and said to us to our en- and to our enemy, you can have them, but you have to kill me first. And they did. Only he didn't stay dead. He rose. But for a church that knows him and follows him and bears his name, to cover up things like abuse and domestic violence, and rape, and all of those things, is to not understand the ceremony of the ungiven. The vulnerable ones in Bulgaria were the ungiven, not the strong ones, not the abusers, the little people, the Jews. It's a picture of what it looks like for us. We are to stand with our Lord who stood on the tracks and say, you can have this person, but you have to take me first. That's what it looks like to follow him in these places, to celebrate the ceremony of the ungiven, because we are those people, and we know what it is like to have someone with all power stand on the tracks on our behalf and say no for our sakes so that we can follow him and say no for his sake. Thank you.